Welcome back to episode 107 of the Fitness Devil podcast. We count only the mainstream of episodes. I hope you're really enjoying uh, Dean's side project, Barbell Me Search. Those don't count towards the regular ones, but uh, if you've been listening to those, give us some feedback. We want to know how what you think about that. We have Pete Dupuis on today. Pete is the co-owner of Pricey Sports Performance, and he talks about a lot of things that he tends to spew off on his famous Twitter stream about fostering his employees at Cressy's to have their own brands, their own identities versus stifling that sort of thing. We talk about focusing on your own business and ignoring the competition and about allowing yourself to have truth tellers versus yes men in your environment so you get some critical feedback. Thanks. Shut up and sit down. Hey everyone, welcome back. We've got Pete Dupuis back with us today. We had Pete back, oh God, was it like 40 or 50, 60 episodes ago? So we're grateful to have you back. And if you haven't heard the original episode, if you're newer to us, well, Pete is the co-owner and general manager of Cressy Sports Performance. And he's pretty much one of the most prolific sources of fitness business information in our world. So I always make a big point of telling people to go follow well. Your Twitter is where you're usually active with it, but all your social media, we'll get to that after. And uh, it's important to pay attention to the business side of being a fitness professional, because a lot of people are just talking about their squats and deadlifts. So if you're not conscientious about your actual business, it interferes with your ability to get in front of people to actually help them. So uh, welcome back to you. I appreciate you guys having me again. You've kind of been on fire lately. <laughs> on fire <laughs> give me some one, context <laughs> what was the one quote about like are we are we talking about that in the podcast oh yeah we totally are like, okay, so fuck. I, we'll, we'll, we'll go right to it so he's talking about like all these just really like poignant things that you've been spouting off on twitter and so that's usually anyone who's listened to, to this for a while knows that i will mine through our guest social media for recent stuff that's really good so we don't even have to mine it like literally shows up it's like I don't know if it's every two weeks you say something like really not controversial, but like everyone agrees with (laughs) in a controversial way. I don't think anything of it is controversial. Like CSP, there's nothing controversial. You guys don't ever talk about politics. It's your policy, for example, but let's actually get to this one because it's an article that you wrote. It's fantastic. It's called, what if you stop worrying about employees maintaining personal brands End quote, and then CSP has always fostered and supported your, your trainers underneath the corporate umbrella to have their own individual brands and, and personalities out there. Um, so why do you encourage this? And like, what, what are your thoughts on business that restrict this? Well, I'll start by saying that I, I'd be incredibly hypocritical if I didn't allow it at this point in time, considering I, I personally brand the material that you're mentioning as far as Twitter and Instagram content goes and my own website. I mean, I'm not, I'm not publishing a business specific blog on CressySportsPerformance.com, So I need to acknowledge the fact that I'm taking that Liberty for starters, but it is something we've had in place for over a decade now. And it's partially because our business was built on the foundation of Eric's personal brand that existed before we started. And so we started a gym named after him simply because it was the fastest route to brand awareness. And it would have been crazy if we told, told, told Tony Gentilcourt at that time, you can't have your own website, but Eric can. We co-founded this business together. And so we just, it was, it was baked into the recipe right from the start. He was managing a blog. 
Eric was managing a blog and I didn't bother to do any of my own content creation until we were seven, eight years in because I didn't realize I had anything to say. But I think that that's pretty important because it allowed me to accumulate some insights and career capital that made the stuff I said credible at that point in time when I decided to raise the flag and say, hey, I, I've got a message I want to share. Tony actually said this last week on the podcast. He actually credited you know, being able to develop his personal brand uh, on air. And that's the reason why he is where he is right now, that you guys allowed that. Yeah. And I... Look, we didn't allow anything. Right. There was never a point where we said, hey, Tony, you are now allowed to go create TonyGeneralCore.com. Um, I will tell you, forgive me if Tony told this story, but are you guys aware of what Tony's blog was titled before TonyGeneralCore.com no. existed? I think he was embarrassed probably. That's why I didn't say it. Yeah, Tony doesn't put this one out there, but I, I aggressively do. So Tony GeneralCore had the URL, the G spot. <laughs> and he thought that that would be a, a long-term kind of viable fitness resource. And I, I distinctly remember a day when Eric said to him, hey, man, we take care of a lot of high school athletes. Their parents are paying attention to what we're doing. You, you need something other than the G-Spot as <laughs> your blog title. And so that was the, a pivot in the early stages in 2007 that he had to make. And he actually went and he published content for the Boston Herald for a period of time. And he was accumulating clicks and, and you know an audience but he was doing it and building their brand and not his own so uh thankfully for him he made that jump pretty quickly i, I think he might have written for them for six to 12 months before he realized hey i gotta take this onto a personal branding platform and build out his own site and you know now he's got 10 12 years of of momentum going to build that big audience but to circle back to what we were saying part of the reason this this blog concept was relevant is because we we've had a number of employees over the year build out personal brands. We've had and we've even had employees build out personal brands and leave to start competing businesses under that that masthead as well. And there are people who will routinely come at me and say, "Do you learn your lesson? Are you going to change your attitude?" And and my answer is a definitive no, absolutely not. I'm not going to put the handcuffs on people and tell them that they can't have that creative outlet and and concern themselves with building a career path beyond our operation because the reality is we don't we don't offer we offer something that falls between a job and a career and and I say that because we don't we don't have um salaries or wages that could sustain huge families and it's not that we don't want to it's just that the nature of our model is such that Supply and demand says I have a massive supply of people who are demanding jobs that are more entry level in nature as far as getting your foot into the industry and getting some momentum and figuring out where you want to go from there. But I can't offer a wage that isn't going to support a full family and tell people you can't protect yourself or develop something that's going to be marketable beyond your time with us. And so I won't put the brakes on that for any of them. I support people who want to build their own personal brand or their message. And as long as they follow certain guidelines or stay within the guardrails, we outline for them, you know, be respectful. Don't start fights on the internet. Keep the following language to a minimum if you can. They're, you know, basics, but basics aren't necessarily that common sense these days in the, uh, the online space. But if they can do that, I'm going to say, let it rip. Do what you're going to do, build up that profile, and we will help you leverage your affiliation with our business to scale it a little bit. Do you find that because you've done that, you get more out of them? 
So because they're creative and because they're doing this on the side, they end up becoming worth more to you with their time with you, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Because if you tell people that you can't build out any type of personal reputation within your space, then you're kind of saying, I don't want you to think creatively because you're, you're effectively saying, Hey, uh, everything you create is, is essentially intellectual property of our operation. Therefore, you know, we deserve it. And, and I think that's a garbage approach because people will say to themselves, well, I'm just not going to bother then. I'm not going to bust my ass just to support you when you're not going to be concerned with my well-being in the long term. Well, this reminds me of something that uh, well, the, the, so Dean Somerset and I used to work for a company uh, back in the past. Now we're both contractors under uh, Evolved Strength, but I know we own our own businesses. But we're, the Dean was always the guy who was allowed to create his own brand, and he built up this you know, brand that's internationally renowned as a, as a speaker and a writer, blog poster, created his own info products. And that was always allowed. And then, uh, you know, I can't compare myself to that, but I certainly was allowed to, you know, bring up my own brand along the way. And that's something I've taken off with more since I've left that umbrella. Along the way, long after we were gone, the corporation got bought out. I won't say too much specifically about this, but then the new corporation basically told all the trainers that they weren't allowed to so they, couldn't have, they couldn't have online training. They weren't allowed to have their own online training businesses anymore, which was previously allowed, and that the corporation was also going to uh, own their websites and their domains and all this sort of stuff. So I'm not going to get into too much because there's some contentious stuff there and some legal shit I'll there. say it. Basically, they, at this point now, then now they've re-allowed it because everyone fucking got pissed, and then now they're like, you can do online training, but we're taking 30%. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, like, and I'm like, can they even do that? And like, why are you working for the... <laughs> Well, let's just put it this way, it, that and some other things caused a mass exodus of their, their best staff, and, and now, of course, there's a lot of bad blood in, in that environment. I'm not going to get into too much, because there is some legal that's a perfect. That's a perfect opposite to what you're saying. Yeah. It's like they lost all of their best people, and like if any <laughs> business learned from that, it's like, well, fuck that. Like, you're 30% on their online training for like trainers I, that I don't, don't have big online training businesses, yeah, like not, for what, I'm an extra sure, thousand bucks? I'm not sure about those numbers or percentages, but I know there was something to that effect. And... And what I will say is, is that brand, that corporation has seen its market share in steady decline for a really long period of time. And they're, they're very embattled while other companies have come in and taken up more market share. And, and they certainly lost the, the vast majority of their training professionals and have had a very hard time rebuilding any of that stuff. So they've been pretty embattled. And that's not the only decision that hurt them, but it was a fairly significant blow to their, to their business. Well, I think one of the underappreciated things here is that what makes my business profitable and fascinating, I think, is is the fact that I don't employ a series of robots. And what they're trying to do is commoditize their team. I mean, if, if you don't let them think kind of as, as an individual and you don't in, have them inspired to think creatively, then you're going to basically end up with a bunch of clones of each other. And Whereas on the flip side, if I allow my team to have personal branding endeavors in place, they they figure out who they are as coaches and they explore interesting areas of expertise. And oftentimes they bring different pieces of the market, different demos into our space because of their areas of expertise that they've chosen to pursue. So it it scales well in the sense that it helps the business. And I've got a bunch of employees who feel like I trust them. That's, that's the problem I see first and foremost. It's a trust issue. And if before you've even earned that trust of an employee, 
you say to them, here are all the things you're not allowed to do. And one of them is taking ownership of their personal brand and their message. There's, there's never going to be trust. There's never going to feel like there's a healthy respect in place. Well, I think one of the major things going on here is you're very cognizant that, you know, well, your interns go all over the place. You have a, a lot of very well-known interns. You've got people like Sophie Lee and Jordan Syed who were once under your umbrella. And we should have both of them on the podcast again very soon. And they're very, very well-known. And that reflects very positively on you. Whereas um, a lot of these companies, and I know my, my former employer to a certain extent, a lot of what they were trying to do was to make sure that they kept their trainers in-house and didn't go beyond to do anything else. And in some cases, take some very aggressive measures in order to deter that sort of behavior where I think you guys have developed a brand where, you, like you said, you have a supply of people wanting to come in that if someone goes on and does something beyond it leaves, well, first of all, you've got the ability to bring in other people who will be able to keep your business going. But it, it's never sounded like you've tried to pre prevent someone from ever leaving. I mean, one quote, I think it's an Alan Cosgrove quote that you're always saying, and I love it is people ask, well, what if you invest in your employees and they leave? And the response to that is, well, what if you don't and they stay? So it sort of speaks to a greater conversation. Exactly. Yeah. I'm a big fan of regurgitating that one. It's, <laughs> I kind of look at it. I like to use the analogy of like the NFL coaching tree. And so if you were to pick out a, a well-known coach, maybe it's Andy Reid, it's Bill Belichick, it's whoever you're a fan of, they typically will spin out a bunch of coordinators who get head coaching gigs. And kind of regardless of how well they perform once they get into those elevated roles, they, they reflect well on the head coach that they worked under before. They become part of the coaching tree. They're seen as an extension of his brand. And it's, it's interesting because he's kind of been a can't-fail situation. They go off and they kill it as a head coach. People say, of course they did. He's a product of Bill Belichick. If they go off and they fail, they say, well, of course they did. Bill Belichick was a guru. You can't do it without Bill Belichick. And so that's kind of the spot we're in. If an intern leaves here or a coach leaves here and kills it, it, they may hate to hear me say this, but if they're killing it, there are some people out there who are saying, yeah, well, they, they, that person worked alongside Eric Cressy for a number of years. Of, of course they're thriving. Whereas if they don't, they're going to say they never should have left. That, <laughs> that place was great. They shouldn't have left. So it, it selfishly, I see it as a can't lose. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sorry know, if that makes me come across as a scumbag. <laughs> no, any, anyone who knows you knows that's not actually how you think. You're just talking about the perception in some people's eyes, right? So mm -hmm. there's no downside to it. <laughs> exactly. That, I guess the ultimate takeaway is there's no value in burning bridges on the way out, uh, whereas there is immense value in maintaining an amicable relationship at all times and making sure that we all per, are perceived as each other's network. We'll even look at, we'll just use Tony because Tony was just here and we're talking about it. Tony's gone on to do crazy things. And again, he's an extension of that completely. And he was part ownership. And sure. He's allowed to do that. So it's, it's just interesting. And, and both of you have never said anything bad about each other because there was nothing bad to begin with. Well, Tony no, and I can tell you with, with absolute transparency that Eric and Tony and I, the three of us were on a text thread just yesterday <laughs> talking about the new lease that Tony signed and, and making sure that we are advocates for each other's kind of objective, objectives beyond 
working as business partners. So that's that's a good example of of a relationship that is hasn't just moved on amicably because that sounds like we managed not to get into a shit a shit storm. In in reality, we're still friends. We're he good friends. To, he tried to change the name on himself, so instead of core, he tried to do the G spot, and you guys kind of let him. Like, don't yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like to think that he was he was saved from some headaches there, and I really like the move, the angle that he's transitioning to, going from core to core collective. I think I think the model he's putting in place is is super fascinating. Yeah, he talked a lot about that on the episode. So anyone who's listening to this and found you found this episode through you, guys, go back and listen to the twenty one because you'll get a lot more of this sort of stuff. Kind of one of like that's the best story ever, and just maybe because I'm a big child, but it's just like I could see him at that. Like, how old was he when he came up with that? Oh, Tony's. Uh, I'm 38, and Tony's got to be. Uh, I I want to say three, four, maybe five years older than me. So when when we started the business, Eric and I were 25, and Tony was approaching 30. Oh, and so he was right around 30 years old when he thought it was a good idea to call his website the cheese spot. That's like about the time we all kind of grew up. <laughs> well, Tony, I mean, we're all big children. Look, I mean, we show up to a gym every day to work. I still wear sweatpants and a hoodie to work every single day. So um, I'm not going to pretend that I'm more mature than I am. I would say, I still think at 29, you should, <laughs> you should know better. Well, then tell Tony. <laughs> we're going to rename his episode. Okay, so and, and talking of tweets, a recent tweet mentioning focusing on your own business and ignoring the competition. We know many people fall into this trap. Would you elaborate on this, especially considering this just happened? Okay. Um, I don't want to give the impression that I don't believe tracking the competition is important because I, I think it's always, it's imperative that you be in touch with the marketplace, understand what you're working against. The purpose of that tweet, if I remember correctly, was to communicate the message, nothing matters if your house isn't in order. So if you're gonna spend your days worrying about the new service offering of the guy down the road or worrying about them undercutting you on price or worrying about them taking a client or two while knowing full well that inside your operation under your own roof, you have employees who are disgruntled or you have a clusterfuck of a pricing strategy or you've got just things that need to be addressed, then time spent thinking about the competition is time wasted. Because no matter how effectively you pivot against whatever the competition's doing, you've still got grumpy staff. And so my point was, get your shit in order, you know, and then then let that be something further down the line on your priority list. Again, uh, I'm not saying ignore the existence of comp competition. I'm just saying make sure your priorities are straight as you're as you're working your way through your to do list. And nothing matters if you don't have a cohesive team and an efficient operation. I interpret this uh, with a little bit further and something I talk about a lot in various different things that I write is being in control of your own attitude and your own actions in the face of things that aren't in your control. There are a lot of things that are going to happen, what your competitors are doing. You really don't have any control over that. So if you look inward, like you're talking about making sure your own house is in order, you are very much taking control of the things that you can, you can deal with. Um, I, I wrote this yesterday on social media. And I had a few clients recently all unable to continue. It was just stuff beyond their control, certainly beyond mine. And instead of being frustrated about it or anything like that, I let them know that I fully support them. And meanwhile, I just constantly keep working on the things that over the years has brought me a very steady, strong flow of referrals and business. 
And sure enough, a lot of really positive things have happened recently. I've had a major influx of clientele, not because of any specific thing I did that day or a promotion or whatever. It just happened to be relationships over the years. And if you fail to do that, <clears throat> excuse me, fail to do that stuff really well day in, day out, then you really will be at the mercy of what your, your competition doing. If you do your job well, your competition pretty much can't do anything. Completely agree. And I think with those, the clients who, if, if I read your post correctly, uh, there was kind of a price sensitivity issue based on where they're at in their life right this moment. You handle yourself professionally in that moment in time, they're scratching inclined to get back to you. They're not, they're not left with a bad taste in their mouth. Not at all. We have great relationships. And yeah, it, it was an economic situation. Uh, you know, without, no one knows who any of these people are. One is dealing with the, the legal issues of a divorce. One has a, um, you know, a family member who's in financial distress and that's siphoning off some stuff. Another one is just overwhelmed with just personal work stress stuff and just has to take some time away. That's not a financial issue. And these are things that they can't control. So uh, all but one I know is, is very just distracted and with, with the family stuff, but everybody else like really is like frustrated and upset that they can't continue training and they really know that this is important for their emotional well-being. So in that, that case, I'm going to be there to make sure I hold them accountable and support them. Well, it's, like, it's expensive. Like, I, don't even yeah, think, right I don't even think the trainers that train people can honestly say, oh, like the, the, you're kind of taught to talk with X Factor <laughs> stuff. They have those sales pitches because training is expensive. Like, like it's hard. If you, if you don't understand that in your own clientele, you're kind of, you've lost, you've missed the whole boat. Yeah, it's funny. There's, there's kind of an, an exercise I encourage my consulting clients to go through where, where they have to actually look themselves in the mirror and say, would I pay f full price for my own services to have, to have my kids train here? And it's a scary exercise because <laughs> I'm hypocritical in that sense where I've got a three and a five-year-old, but I'm, I'm say seven, eight, nine years away from my son, Colin, being a candidate for the kind of services we offer. At this moment in time, I'm like, my God, that's expensive. <laughs> I'm selling it every day of the week. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm in touch with that. And it's, it's crazy because when I realize that I'm, I'm not necessarily at peace with the idea of putting several hundred dollars toward this stuff for my own kids, I realize that uh, the language we use matters. The way that we we handle a person who demonstrates a hint of price sensitivity matters. And we live in this own little, this little bubble where we've convinced ourselves that our cheapest price point is cheap. And it's not, it's just the cheapest on an expensive list. And I lose sight of that from time to time. And it's, it's important that I recenter and realize that even the people who show up once a week are making a bigger investment in their health and fitness than I ever did at any point before starting a gym. And it's a, uh, it's a reminder I need every day of the week. Well, and, and that's absolutely true. I think honestly, that story is probably very similar for most of us. Like, did you pay for a trainer? Um, no, I've never paid for a trainer, but, <laughs> I didn't. but I paid for coaches over the years, but that was after I got into it because again, it becomes hypocritical. I've been, you know, the first time I met Pete, I had spent, you know, at least a couple thousand dollars to fly down to the fitness on in Kansas city. And then the second time we got to hang out, I had flown down to Renton, Seattle at Luca Hosevar's event. It, uh, it was a fitness business thing as well. And uh, yeah, like I've spent a lot of money just going to these things to educate and, and to learn more and to invest. Like I just put up a post about all the books that I bought from various different fitness professionals. Just got Brett Contreras' Glute Lab. I'm going to call it the Glute Bible. And that thing is fantastic. Uh, so, you know, it's not for fear of spending money on all these sort of resources because, uh, 
that, that stuff's incredibly valuable. If you're a trainer who's not willing to spend money on any resources, then I'm just going to start saying, hey, there's a red flag. Well, it's, it's, it's super, I don't know, maybe this is just personally, but it's super hard to tell people to do shit when you're not willing to do it yourself. So that's what I mean. That hard look, that question is like, oh, and then we look at the things we spent money on. So now I feel a little bit better about it. Like you're right. I pay for education stuff too, but that's, that's a really serious question, Pete. Like you're really, really <laughs> that's a tough one. Look yourself in the mirror. <laughs> it goes to something else too. They just extension this. We just recently hosted um, in our fitness conference, uh, the Canadian strength symposium. And I don't think I would have had the credibility to be able to tell people, Hey, come to this. You know, we had 107 people attend for a first year thing. We're getting, you know, a lot of industry people going, wow, like that's insane for first ever event. You had big name speakers in there, but I've flown to this stuff. I've traveled to these things routinely. I go to, well, if you count the local stuff, I mean, probably six, seven or eight a year. I think this year will be a total of eight. I don't have any credibility to say, hey, come and spend money on ours when if I don't value and, and put, purchase the plane ticket in the hotel to go in and check something out in Dallas, Texas or in Kansas City. So true. And I think that's where people kind of lose sight of the importance to the continuing ed. Even the ones whose material they're consuming, those people are attending events. I mean, Luca got his ass kicked for months on end leading up to hosting that Vigor event. And then he hosted it and it looks like they packed out a room to the point where there was like a concerning amount of people in the room from a fire code perspective. And what's the first thing he did 72 hours later, he got on a flight and came out here for our fall seminar and sat through every minute of our, our business uh, mentorship the following day. And he was here, he was taking notes, he was all in. And so people need to appreciate the fact that, the, the teachers are learning too. I mean, I, I just yesterday spent 400 bucks to register for an event because I want to go to a digital marketing summit in Boston in three weeks that Seth Godin's keynoting. Nice. And, and I spent that money because I want to listen to Seth Godin for 60 minutes. And I'm sure I'll learn a ton from everybody else. But the point is, I'm taking a Monday and a Tuesday away from the gym and I'm going to be there, hopefully adding value for our business. And, you know, I'm not just sitting here thinking that I can open a book periodically or open up, you know, the occasional newsletter and just get better and people are going to keep listening. I have to be learning every minute that I'm not trying to create content. Yeah. I tend to treat it the same way. And like Godin, I've read most of his books and quite frankly, I should read them all. They're all kind of on my list, but his book Lynchpin, we'll get to books later, but his book Lynchpin is probably one of the first books that I ever read when I began my pursuit of this sort of stuff. And it's still one of the most influential to this day. Well, it's funny, I, you, you mentioned that on my ride to work today, I was listening to the, the Entree Leadership Podcast and they interviewed Godin this week or, or uh, I guess maybe at some point in September, it's a recent episode. And he was specifically talking about Lynchpin and he said it's a decade older and it's more relevant today than it was the day I wrote it. And so it, it continues to bring value. It, it probably is worth actually mentioning this because it goes back to our first question line of conversation. It, it's a book about not just doing the bare minimum that you think you're entitled to based on minimum wage salary or whatever is a metaphor. It's about going way above and beyond. It's about, you know, smiling at people. It's about being of service and doing so much more than is expected of you. And then what eventually happens is, you know, you have this job that you think maybe is beneath you or it's entry level or, or whatever. You either get promoted and noticed from within or you get noticed and promoted from without and you go on to grow and do bigger things. I remember I had a job as a poker dealer and a poker manager. 
And I still remember a lot of the players' names, you know, 12 to 13 years ago. They certainly remember me. I ran into one guy at the gym, at a gym I liked, a commercial gym I like to go to and work out at. He remembered me, came up, said hi. I added him to Facebook, which is something I routinely do when I meet people because then you have a connection. And then maybe about a month and a half later, he reached out to me and he said he wanted to come and train with me. So that's the sort of thing where people remember you from a past place. Now, I had no ambition of being a trainer at the time. I didn't know what I was going to do. It's something I fell into nine years ago. But I've had dozens of former players and coworkers <clears throat> train with me in this career that I knew from that career because I went above and beyond in that. And I have active right now four from that. In fact, one of them went on to then turn around and meet sort of follow Carter Good through me and follow Jordan Syed through me and has actually done coaching with both of these guys, right? And we were talking about Syed as being one of your former interns has gone on to a lot of great things. Uh, just because I had a good relationship with a coworker 13, 12 years ago. Plus you're unforgettable. He's, for anyone listening that doesn't know Andrew, he's like six, how tall are you? Six two. And he's like the same width and he's redheaded. So <laughs> I was going to say, running you into you in a commercial gym uh is is either terrifying or it's just really easy to spot that person you know <laughs> you, you don't exactly blend into the crowd based on my experience uh, well they know you're a trainer like you, you like look like a trainer so you don't even have to have that conversation they're like oh you you're definitely a trainer now like i should train with you every one of these events i go to i'm i'm almost always the biggest or the second biggest guy one one year at the Kansas City Fitness Summit, uh, it's like, oh yeah, Jay, I made this joke before. Jay Ashman had lost about 10 pounds and I gave him about 10 pounds from the previous year. I'm like, all right, cool. And we look back and you're Stan Efforting sitting in the back, just chilling out and taking everything in. Right? IFBB pro bodybuilder and you know legendary powerlifter. The guy is monstrous. Oh, that's a good example of what we were talking about before though too. You, you never know who's in the room. And there's a lot of the time at these events, there's someone sitting at the back of the room who should absolutely be standing in front of the room but that's what's so cool about it. Well, the cool thing about Stan was like the people who knew, knew, and there wasn't that, like at Kansas City, there's not a lot of meatheads that like know Stan. And like, there was a few of us that he walked in the back. And I think he came like a little bit later, maybe just right at the end. And we we're just like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and like no one, and he just kind of sat down like this beside someone. And I'm like, that's everything. And he had his cooler full of his wheels, right? Still <laughs> living the lifestyle. And I mean, I'm a little taller than he is. He's a tall guy, relatively speaking, to pro bodybuilders. I think he's still probably 5'11 or 6 feet tall. A lot of them are like 5'6. But he's big. He's like 275 lean. And Stan has got to be in his, what, early 50s at this point. So he is a... But it goes, it's like you said, like there's people who are in the positions they're in still do these things a lot of the time. Like there's obviously exceptions, but everyone's still learning. Like, yep. Well, let's actually move on to one of your tweets because I mean, this shit is just pure gold. It's just, it's so just a tweet episode. <laughs> We're just like, let's like rip through your Twitter. If you take one thing away from this whole episode, is go follow Pete on Twitter. Please. Explain yourself so, for this one. This one. <laughs> you you talked about threading yourself with truth tellers versus yes men, and what's <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> sorry guys, what's been the effect at CSP along these lines, and how do you instill this within your culture? you know to make it safe for people to challenge you or to speak their truths as opposed to just line up and go yes and agree with you know godfather pete well i don't necessarily have a system for or i never did have a system where i say i need to bring someone in who's gonna call me out on my shit um it it almost wasn't until i had someone on staff who was willing to do so that i realized the value in it and realized just how unaware i was of my blind spots and so 
I, I there's a term that I've had written down in the notes of my app or the Notepad app on my phone where I've been, I want to figure out a way to write about it, but I can't figure out exactly how or when, but it'll come in. It's the term impact blindness. And it, it very aptly describes how you say live in Eric Cressy's world. Like Eric doesn't appreciate the impact that he has on, on the people around him as far as employees go, because he can't ever see the version of them that exists when he's not in the room. And I don't mean that they, they just screw off and they stop being productive. I mean, they actually become the authentic version of themselves because there's, there's two kinds of strength coaches in my experience. There's the ones that they believe Eric wants them to be. And then there's the coach that they are when he's not there. And, and it's not a technical thing. It has absolutely nothing to do with their skill set. It's a personality and approach thing. It's their style. It's their, their awareness of his presence in the gym. And, he has a blindness to the impact that he brings. And on some level, I'm sure I do as well, being a founder of this operation. And, you know, we have young interns who come through and young staff members that we hire. And I'm, I'm unaware of how they feel in my presence because I just, I don't know the alternative. And what it took was bringing on a guy like John O'Neill, who's our director of performance, who interned for us in Florida, left and worked in Manhattan at a reputable gym for a number of years, came back in and, and basically said to us, like, I see flaws around here. You want to hear what I think? And at that point, we're like, well, we just lost half of our staff because they left to start a competing gym. We, <laughs> we can keep our head in the sand and pretend that there are no flaws and just keep powering forward at our own expense, or we can start listening. And thankfully, he raised the flag on a bunch of stuff and called us out on some of our weaknesses and we adjusted. And, and as I mentioned before the call, there's a pretty decent chance we make a run at our best year ever here. And it took us 18 to 24 months to get there coming out of that stage. And, and I, my wife said to me the other night, what's, what's been the turning point? And I said, it's John, you know, it was John. He called us on our bullshit. <laughs> he helped us implement change and here we are. And so now I find myself trying to extract that feedback more regularly from everybody because I know they all, they all have valuable insights that I wasn't, I wasn't mining for as effectively as I could historically. So that tweet was basically saying, let people know that you know your shit stinks too. You know, you're, you, you make mistakes just like they do and you want to hear about it so that you can fix it instead of living in your blind little world where you think, well, no one said anything. Therefore, I'm really great at what I do. At what point do you take feedback and either choose to use it or not? Like, what's your filter system for like stuff that you're going to use or not use? For me, it was getting kicked in the teeth. I mean, <laughs> we really legitimately getting kicked in the teeth when we had when we had the staff defection and the the change, you know, competing for business that we had generated. And so it was it was, you know, adjust or fail. And so now I'm I'm always excited to get feedback. Feedback's a gift. It was like now you, let's just say you're not gonna get kicked in the teeth. And buddy, one of your interns is like, listen you got some weaknesses. Are you in a place where you're willing to accept or not? Like how, how do you go through that process now? Cause like, it's easy when you're down you're like, well, obviously there's something wrong. But what about well, you can't just unconditionally assume a hundred percent of feedback to be accurate. Yeah. But I did, I, I put it on, on Twitter yesterday on social. I said, I said, you have to start with the mentality that the feedback you're receiving is accurate from clients and then work your way from there because it can go two ways. 
you can argue and run the risk of putting your foot in your mouth if you're wrong, or you can argue and be proven right. But does that add any value to your operation when a client feels like you just proved a point at their expense? No, that's, that's not a retention strategy I would put in place. Or you can ultimately be proven right, but have been giving the benefit of the doubt, you're the good guy. So I treat all of this feedback as it very well may, may be right. If it, if it came from a position of, I, I would say, love, like someone who wants to see us improve and, and they want to see us succeed and they're giving us some critical feedback, I'm going to assume they are right until proven otherwise. And it's, it's really not a big deal if somebody gives me some feedback that ultimately wasn't all that accurate. I have a filtering system that I work it through because if it's feedback that, that requires distinct change, on the part of our staff, I'll typically pull John and or Eric in the room and I'll say, hey, I just got this tough feedback. What are your thoughts? And, and then we work our way through it. And that might require some additional research or conversation with the person delivering the feedback, or it might require all of us looking ourselves in the mirror, like we said earlier and saying, you know what, this is a problem. It's pretty obvious and we've been turning our head to it. Let's hit it. How, how do you, so this is cool, because we just talked about impact blindness. How do you extract feedback when you like, <laughs> you're going to have that impact blindness regardless? Because if you walk in the room like I need some feedback, like I'm I just started at Cressy, <laughs> there's no fucking way I'm saying anything. Like how do you get around that? I think if you you foster a culture of of openness in the sense that you let's say you are that new coach on the team, and you sit down in an all hands on deck staff meeting, and you see John picking me or Eric apart for something that he didn't like the yeah. week before. And you look around the room and you realize there are a lot of heads nodding. Like, yes, I've seen this. You realize, hey, this is a place where John's not going to feel like we cracked the whip because he opened his mouth. So we just need to create an environment where it's, it's consistently visible. But this gives the impression that we're just constantly dealing with problems. I, I feel like we run a pretty healthy, clean organization. It just means that problems do arise. We make adjustments, but the key is just demonstrating to the newest, the youngest, the lowest on the totem pole staff members that everybody is expected to raise their hand if they see an issue because it only stands to hurt all of us if we let it fester. And I think something that's important but unsaid at this point is I'm sure it has to be done in a respectful way too. You can't foster an environment where people are quite frankly being assholes about it or, or disrespectful. So I'm sure that's part of the package. Absolutely. Good. We got more tweets lined up. <laughs> let me and let me elaborate on the tweets because <laughs> you make it sound like I live on Twitter. Um, I I have an objective for myself from a content creation standpoint to to hit certain benchmarks. Where my attitude is just if I show up in these places this many times per week, I'm going to achieve certain objectives. So for me, it's I want to put up a tweet that is hopefully meaningful or brings value uh, one a day on weekdays. And if I hit that mark, typically good things happen. And so Twitter is like a testing ground for me. It's where I, it's where I filter out ideas. So if I put something on Twitter and it plays, you know, there, there is engagement. That means that I'm going to turn it around. I'm going to reformat it in Canva and I'm going to drop it onto my Instagram. And my Instagram has got a much bigger audience. That's where the message scales more quickly and effectively. But basically Twitter's where I test. Instagram is where I roll it out to a bigger audience. And if I have high engagement on both, I write about it. So it's all just, it's experimental in nature in the sense that I'm ultimately working toward trying to create blog content 
that that can bring value and kind of stand the test of time because it's always there if I want to point people back to it or if somebody stumbles upon my material and they start really digging, they'll they can get into upwards of 200 blog posts. But they all originated typically with an idea in the gym that found its way onto Twitter and then went that path. How does Twitter even work? Like, if, if people don't know you, are they going to see your Twitter? Like, if like, because does that process work if people don't know you? Like, uh, for real? I think I'll throw something into that, and then Pete, you can add your own answer. But every social media platform is different in terms of how it functions to find new people to follow or to find new followers. Facebook isn't very good at this anymore. Uh, Instagram, when it, it's in first inception, lesser so now, was fantastic for it. But Twitter has some advantages there too. The retweet function is kind of one of the big ones. You can't regram easily. Like I know there's like sort of programs that let you do it, but resharing stuff, other people's stuff, isn't as smooth on Instagram. Uh, but you can have people find your stuff through hashtags. And then of course there's hashtags on Twitter. So Twitter is a sort of a weird animal. A lot of people thought it would die off a long time ago, but it's still very vibrant in its own sense. But one of the big functions is people will retweet your stuff if it's good and then more people find you. So your thoughts on that? Yeah, what I like about Twitter is that I find it more challenging than Instagram. Hmm. Um, I find it more challenging than Facebook. And by that, I mean you've your garbage material doesn't play on Twitter. There's just crickets. You put it up there and, and nothing happens. Then that's a pretty good indicator that you're not trying hard enough or you're not, you're not putting out meaningful stuff. And so if, if I put up a tweet, my audience on Twitter is only about 20% the size that it is on Instagram. I, I feel like I got to work harder for it. And the cool thing about Twitter that I, I actually really liked back in the day when they were at 140 characters was it forces you to think in kind of concise terms. You need to figure out how to get a, a meaningful message across in very few words. And it was an, an interesting and kind of useful exercise in, in communication. And so when they doubled that number of, of characters that you could use in the last couple of years, it, it certainly it allowed me to do more with the platform, but it's still not a ton. I mean, you can only put three, four sentences into one of these things. And so it's a really nice exercise in brevity. And brevity is important because you just don't see a lot of people cranking out 2,500 word blog posts anymore. And no one has the attention span for it. I mean, I published a post this morning that I think was 540 words at Starbucks. And no one ever comes at me and says, you know, I really liked that blog, but it wasn't long enough. I've literally never heard that once. Yeah. I, you know, it, it was just, it was too brief. And so Twitter is kind of where you, you hone your craft in that sense. And that's why I like it. But Twitter is never going to scale for me super huge. Um, I think that when you guys say like, my tweets are a gold mine. I'm pretty sure both of you are actually seeing them on Instagram. Yeah. Well, I actually, see them, I actually see them on Twitter, but actually I'll touch on that point. I think that when I, and I do this deliberately because I have a Twitter account, but I don't do anything to grow. I've never tried to, but I just follow a lot of shit, uh, a lot of fitness professionals and, and, and just to kind of know what's going on in the world. Uh, somebody's fault, even though I don't talk about it, it's still good to know. So it looks really good on Instagram when you take that picture of your tweet and you share it on Instagram. <laughs> That's what well, I, I just like it. So like the reason why I would say they're fire is because like you said, you have to get really good at putting your message, but there's really no context given. So it was like Andrew said, I interpreted it as this and someone interprets it as this and then it's just a bunch of people talking and then you write your article and you're like, oh, 
that's why it's like all these things. Let's just ask him. You've written articles about it, but not everyone goes from that to the article. They just see like, oh, Pete's just saying shit, trying to start stuff. But but it, but it, 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 that's a good thing. That means that that message resonated in some form or fashion. And that's so cool to me that I can put something up and think like, God, it's so obvious that this is where I was coming from. And you interpret it differently, but what you said made complete sense. Yeah. That to me, I don't, I don't know that I could attempt to do so consistently, but it's, it's a pretty cool feeling to hear that a message can bring value in, in ways that I didn't intend. But you're, I'm not somebody who's going to say inflammatory things yeah. on social media. So me just saying shit is typically grounded in this is, this is what we did. This is what we saw. I hope you can learn something from it. It's not me stoking the fire and hoping somebody wants to argue with me on the internet because that gives me anxiety. <laughs> when somebody comes back at these with a quick comment that is, is clearly like they're trying to start a fight, I, I get so like tense, you know? Should I go to war on this? Should I just ignore it? Which I know I should deep down, but it's, it's, they're not meant to be provocative in nature. That's actually kind of an interesting thing. We should probably go into that because that it's nice to see someone's thoughts, who's out there putting out information, how they respond to, well, the nasty crap that goes on. And I will agree with Pete in this, and you are one of the most thoughtful but you, your information is not contentious or controversial to the point where it's going to provoke extreme reactions it's just not the way it is it's very informative it's very very um intelligent stuff but there are a lot of people in our industry who write things that are that are openly inflammatory or certainly things that are polarizing and designed to get attention and and discussion so it's I wonder what everybody's thought process is different people. Some people obviously like yourself try to avoid that kind of crap, but I think other people absolutely thrive off it. I don't really want to say some of the names of the more inflammatory personalities. Although one, I'll use a good example who I, I love and respect. And I think he's full of great information. Someone like Dr. Lane Norton and not Lane isn't everybody's cup of tea. I, I happen to really like the information he has. And he's made a bit of a character of himself, a, a grander example Spencer. of his own personality. Spencer does this really well. He's more innocuous, Spencer Nadolsky where he'll push buttons with the, the pseudo-scientific people. And uh, <clears throat> Spencer seems like he's really good at you know, filtering this crap out. So I don't know if you have any greater thoughts about uh, this topic. Uh, I think it comes down to a willingness to play the long game. So in my case, I know that if my material can be interpreted as vanilla in nature, not confrontational, um, it's going to be a slower climb to scale the audience size. But in doing so, I managed to maintain a really engaged audience. And so if you look at, if you look at the metrics on stupid stuff like likes and comments, if you look at the posts I'm putting up on, say, Instagram, there's a ton of engagement. And it's because I never bought anyone for my list. You know, I, I, never, I never took a fraudulent path to scaling the following. And so the people who are there, they're because they want to be there. Not because they saw me say something like confrontational towards somebody or because I decided to stir shit up and see if it could provoke people to hit the follow button because maybe tomorrow I'll say something even stupider. And so my attitude is take this super slow road, but know that every time somebody hits that follow button, it's because they're kind of relenting. They're like, all right, I've seen enough people that I trust 
repost this or put it in their story. The guy's name's shown up enough times. I've decided I see value there. Let's do it. Well, Greg is very similar. Greg Knuckles. He, he basically came on our podcast and was like, all my stuff's super boring and nerdy and for engineers. But since I built up my following, his click rates were like 52% or something. But again, not very controversial, very, very dry to the outside world if you don't know what he's talking about. But he's built up people who, who like that. And so there isn't that disconnect between the stuff he's putting out and the people he's attracting. He's attracting exactly people for his stuff. And he just continues. And he's got an enormous following. Once he launched that podcast, I mean, they were up to an astounding number of downloads per episode almost overnight. So Greg's doing something well. I think it's a good example of what you're doing there. Yeah, because he earned trust with his audience before he went live with it. Yeah, and he, I don't think he said one controversial thing in, no. in the fitness realm, anyways. No, well, it all depends on who you're talking about. <laughs> like, <laughs> Eric, Eric doesn't say anything controversial in my eyes. He does a very nice job of, of staying out of that world. But he's got one Twitter troll who shows up every day of the week <laughs> coming at him. So there's, uh, you know, wherever you go, you're going to find somebody who's just dying to find issue with your material. Definitely an ex-intern, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> the one that failed because they couldn't live up to Cressy. Oh, okay. Let's give let's oh. give the listener who is not the fitness professional something. We're talking about the, the, the retiring one? No, I actually wanted to go into the whole idea of people, you know, when I first met you, one of the things I remember was you kind of quietly sort of sat back in the room and you weren't necessarily in the space that all the other speakers were and, and you weren't like really wandering in amongst all the attendees. So I remember sitting down and, and chatting with you because you were one of the speakers. I told you this before that I really wanted to see you present the first time we met. And we've talked and you sort of feel like perhaps a little bit of an outsider when it comes to the trainers side of stuff, right? Because you are the business mind of Cressy Sports Performance and not the guy on the floor coaching squats. So when you look at our industry, is there anything that you see that we aren't doing as well to take care of the end customer and the end user? Because we're on this podcast, you have a livelihood, I have a livelihood because of clients, because of people who want to get stronger and healthier. Well, I'll tell you that part of the reason that you see me withdrawn to an extent at events like this is because I'm introverted in nature. I, I mean, I, I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking because somebody has stuff to say on the internet, by default, they're going to be a loud, boisterous personality when you come across them. And it's just not the case. I, Tony Gentlecore might be the best example I've ever seen of this. He is, Tony is funny, don't get me wrong, but he's hysterical on his blog. But I, I can't tell you how many times people meet Tony and they're like, I thought he'd be funnier. Like he was going to do stand up or something when they met him and, and start telling jokes about his cat. And he's, he's kind of all business when you meet him in a gym setting. He's, he's a technician when you meet him there. And so that's one of the reasons why it might come across as I'm, I'm choosing not to engage. That's really just nerves you know i'm anxious to throw myself right into that um that's true, right that's the honest thing in fact when we had our event i realized sort of after we'd selected all of our guests that almost all of our speakers were fairly introverted yet i wanted to try to foster an environment where they interacted with the audience i'm like oh shit we gotta like lee boyce if you ever meet lee in person lee is exactly what you described uh, you know on social media he's got a, a loud presence he's and lee is someone who will push buttons at some of the established industry bullshit and, and ruffle some feathers. He doesn't care. 
but he's a very introverted, quiet person in when you really interact with him. So, yeah. And it's, it's not that someone's being fraudulent or anything like that. Like that's the beauty of the internet. You can, you can manufacture a persona. The, the cool thing about these, these events, if you go and you say, Oh, all the presenters are introverted in nature. I think that's a really good indicator that you're going to have kick-ass content because in order to earn the invitation to speak at those events, with an introverted personality, it means you have to have been churning out really good stuff for a really long time because otherwise people just won't take the risk on you. Um, to answer your question about what I think we're maybe collectively doing wrong as an industry, I'll actually counter that with the what you're not expecting. And I think that we're always looking for fault in our field lately. Everybody's looking for something to bitch about. And I'll tell you that we are light years ahead of where we were when I started this business. We are, we have people who care to, let's say, go to perform better where there's multiple tracks and they could be listening to a brilliant mind. They could, they could be in a room listening to Mark Verstegen or they could be listening to my business partner, Eric, but they willingly step out of that room and go listen to Mark Fisher talk business. And, and I think that is absolutely fantastic for everyone involved, including the two who are speaking in other rooms, because the industry as a whole is actually pretty concerned with professionalism from what I can see right now. And they realize that there's a competitive advantage in identifying operational efficiencies and being concerned with the business piece. So I'm not as down on as as, as some people might think, and I don't believe you to be either. It's a, it's a question I hear fairly frequently, but it's pretty cool. I mean, when I started publishing content in 2015, there weren't really a lot of voices doing it. That's part of the reason I got a pass to having an audience because I was talking about something not many other people were talking about. I think if I jumped in right now, it'd be pretty hard for me to get a foothold. It would take a long time to get anyone to pay any attention. But now there's, if there were three, four, five people talking business in the space at the time, that might be 30, 40, or 50 now. And it's a much more crowded space, but it's only to the benefit of everybody else who needs to pick up on these, these techniques, these skills, these tactics. Well, that was the one thing. So we, we've been known for trashing business coaches, whatever. Um, <laughs> but, but it's like you said, there. At this point, we, we trash, there's tons of information. You never know how to siphon the, through the bullshit and same thing with the business stuff. But there's more people putting out information because there's more people listening. And they're seeing the value and needing to get better at systems, needing to get better at funnels and all this stuff because yeah, it works and they can make money. But the industry as a whole is growing enough to support that. You know what I mean? So as much as we make fun of that, there's a lot of people that wouldn't have said anything and you never know where that goes. So, I mean, there's, there's both ends of the scale where it's like, there's too much information. And, but then at the, where you're talking about, there wasn't enough. So it's like, you can't really win, but as a whole, the, the ground just needs to get the ground floor just needs to raise up. Well, just look at how this business space has evolved over the last mm -hmm. couple of years. When I started speaking, uh, my first speaking engagement was at the fitness summit in Kansas city. Um, that was, let's say there were eight presenters or I don't know. I think there was maybe 12 presenters over two days. That was 10 or 11 fitness presentations. And then me and Sol Orwell talking about, about email marketing. I mean, we were, we were outliers. We were an experiment at a fitness conference. Now you got guys like Luca putting a dozen lectures in front of the room, all with exceptional fitness experience. And they're talking about how they built their business. 
Mm-hmm. And, and there is a market for it. I went to the UK this summer and, and presented along eight present, alongside eight presenters, and there was not a single presentation on exercise technique or fitness. It was all on building your fitness business. Mm-hmm. And so there's, there's this whole new market, this demand, this people craving this information. And it's, it's terrifying for me because the competition is just like funneling in. But at the same time, it's great because it's forcing me to get better at my craft. And so I, I, I think we're all collectively headed in a nice direction from the perspective of the business side of fitness. Yeah, there's another event in Dallas now coming up in November. And I was thinking about going to it, but I've got a tool concert to go to in Toronto. Well, two tool concerts back to back. So, <laughs> uh, But it's a guy, uh, Khaled uh, El Masri, I believe is how his name is said. And I know John Goodman is speaking at this event. I know Chad Landers, good friend, is going there. Joey Persia, who's also in that, a lot of that, that business space with copywriting, we've had him on the podcast. And there's a long list of other emerging or known uh, fitness business people. So you're right, this stuff. And again, this like the second event, the, the second time you and I hung out was at Luca's event. And shit, I mean, that Mark Fisher was there as well. Uh, and you had a lot of other people like Craig Valentine who are big in the, in the business space. Well, it's just, it, the hope is like, and this is realistic and I haven't been in the industry that long, but what I noticed is there's a lot of churn because people can't sustain their business long enough to stay in it, to get good at it. And so if anything, this helps people make, well, make a living in this new technology age where they can stay in the industry long enough to do something because the first two years is just chaos for most people. And so now the tools are out there. It's just a matter of figuring out which ones are the best. But it's, it's interesting because I think that the trainer will have a longer career as opposed to being young and out before they even know but, it. But that's okay because there's a lot of fitness so business, there's a lot of business coaches in everybody's DMs now that would help them. <laughs> well, I, would rather... I don't identify as a business coach for the record. <laughs> well, that's where, like I said, we make fun of it. But they're, like, we've had tons of quote-unquote business coaches that are it's, – it's just that – that term gets convoluted because of all the competition in it. But I'll say that I'm glad it's out there because it raises the level of the people doing the good stuff because there has to be competition for, for to, to let the cream rise at the top. Otherwise there's just a few individuals doing it and they don't have any reason to get better. Not that they wouldn't, but it's interesting to see there, where things have gone because of there are really skilled people who are working in that space. I mean, we brought you back and we've got Eric Bach coming back soon. Luca Hosfer is coming on. We've got them scheduled for next week if everything works out. You guys all work in that space to a degree. Um, but the thing about each of those names is it's a secondary thing. It's not your main thing. You run Cressy's. Uh, Luca has bigger ground and you know this vibrant business with us. And then because you guys have been really successful, you have the credibility to then have some consulting clients that you help work with their business success. So it's a little different. Exactly. It's a complimentary piece. And... Um... I, th- I think the wonderful thing about the internet and, and the nature of social media these days is if you suck, the world's going to hear about it. <laughs> so, like, that's what I mean. Like the cream will rise to the top. Cause it's pretty, it's not easy to siphon through some of it. Cause like some people are young enough where they can't see good from bad, but a lot of the times it's very obvious to the larger audience, like where the, where the performers are in that space. <laughs> if that makes sense. No, I totally agree. Well, we talked about Lynchpin and Seth Godin. Um, is there anything that you've been reading more recently that's really profound or anything you just wanted to share that's been kind of legendary for you and, and influencing your philosophy? Oh, profound. Um, my favorite book of 2019 thus far has been um, 
the hard thing about hard things by by I think it's Ben Horowitz. Yeah, I read because that. it was it, it was the ever so rare piece of material that says things are going to go wrong and the solutions that you pick sometimes you're going to have two crummy solutions to pick from and you got to pick one. And so it didn't sell a dream. It was about about building and scaling businesses in the tech space, but the point was it it really it was refreshing and reassuring because you realize that these billionaires who have have bet big and won have also bet big and failed. And he talked about his vulnerabilities and and kind of the the loneliness of uh, entrepreneurship and being the executive. And so, if you find yourself in a semi mature fitness business, I think you'd love the book because it's kind of it reinforces what you see every day that this shit is hard and it's stressful. And sometimes you're doing it by yourself and you're alone with your thoughts at night being like, is this going to work? And, and that's what I really enjoyed about that book and took away from it. Beyond that, I'll tell you that I read uh, the go-giver at least once a year, sometimes twice. And so uh, if you have never touched that one, it's, it's a quick read. It's a business parable. It's, it's great. Really good stuff. I, I actually been hearing about it for a long time, and I finally uh, put it in the audio like um, sort of rotation. And yeah, it's wonderful. Did a hockey great. player write it? No, it's a. Well, the go giver giver is like no. a baseball hockey thing. No, it's um, no, it's a business guy. But it's like you said, it's a parable, so it's sort of a, a fictitious example. But he, it's so illustrative of a lot of really important principles, and it certainly got me thinking. I try to remember the other book. There was something else also about giving that uh, I had read around the same time and whichever book it was is kind of lost on me. But Subtle Art of Giving a Fuck? No, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> His favorite book. My favorite book ever. Uh, but yeah, no, you're right. Uh, and I've read Horowitz's book as well and uh, that one's really, really good. So no, I actually think everybody should probably read The Go-Giver. It, like you said, it's actually short. So let's say you do it on audio, you're going to blast through it really quickly and I think it's going to change the way you think about some stuff. Sure. Totally agree. I feel like, I feel like Pete should help you make a site about book reviews. Like, <laughs> Andrew's literally, nah. like, he's very rarely stumped with a new book from our, our audience. He's like, oh yeah, I read that one. Like, I didn't even hear this book. Like, oh yeah, I read that one. One of the problems with posting about books is, and in, honestly, we ask this question. I know people casually enjoy it, but and it's kind of a little bit more for us than it may be for the listener, but I'm, I hope some of the listeners enjoy it. Is whenever I make a post about a book I'm reading, it rarely gets any response. So I stopped posting on Facebook about the books I was reading, unless it really stands out as being a really exceptional book, because you just don't get comments or... You didn't test it on Twitter before. No, you got to test it on Twitter like Pete. There's, <laughs> there, every single thing I put out is a reflection of what I'm reading right now or listening to. Every single thing. Maybe <laughs> I mean, you can... You can see fingerprints of, of the authors that I'm consuming information from all over my social media. Yeah, I'm paraphrasing concepts and, and I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm absolutely not plagiarizing, but I'm, I'm accumulating these mindsets from what I'm reading in that moment. And that's the only reason I keep reading. I think that my approach to reading is really flawed in the sense that I never stop and say, sit down and say, all right, what did I take away from this book and how did I apply it and how did it change my business? Because that's, that's much more valuable in the grand scheme of how I run my business. But I read for the, for the business consulting piece. 
because I, I read because I'm digging for talking points and and the material that I read provokes memories it, it reminds me while you've had experiences of that nature over the last 13 years of running your gym um, it's that's something that might bring value to your audience and so I read I read faster and more than I would if my objective was purely to improve our gym because I am right now I try and read a book every two weeks and so if I get through 24 plus books this year, I'll have hit my target for the year. And there are some people who are considerably more prolific readers than that. And there are some people who read a lot less than that. But I can tell you, it's too much material to, to read and inflict change. I mean, I, I, I would not encourage anybody to crank out a book every two weeks because there's just no way that they're saying, like this is what I read and this is exactly how it changed. They can't point at their operation and say, this is what I changed because it takes time to impose change of that nature. So you got to be honest with yourself about why you're reading. And, and I'm being dead honest with you. I'm not reading as productively as I could, but I'm finding a lot of stuff that you guys are categorizing as gold on Twitter. <laughs> well, there you go. I actually just watched this on Netflix. <laughs> they had the limited series with Bill Gates and this is like totally counterpoint to your point but none of us are bill gates because he's like a he's like one of the smartest men in the world he reads like three or four books a day or a, a week and there's he was saying like he retains 90 percent of it and he reads at 200 words an hour or sorry 200 pages an hour oh my god so, but th that's why bill gates is bill gates so i'm just trying to say you obviously you're not bill gates he may have an eidetic memory who knows but like he like literally so this is just cool but the reading piece is so he's doing all that stuff for for charities and 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 he's trying to change the world. He reads books about this topic he's doing. So he's doing nuclear energy. He goes and reads everything about energy and he's smarter than some of the PhDs in it. But again, that's Bill Gates. And there's a reason why he had a hundred billion dollars at one point. So, oh, I believe it. If you, if you brought Mark Fisher on your show right now and you asked him to tell you what he's passionate about, he would give you an hour and a half lecture on commercial real estate. Yeah. Mark is doing that. He's so <laughs> deep, so deep in the real estate game that he can't not talk about it. And, and I think that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. And you hear the term uh, leaders or readers. I think the biggest influencers in our space are people who never put a book down. Mark is one of the most prolific readers and Mark does something that, and I think I probably pick this up from people like Mark um, is you know, again, I always talk about listening to audiobooks, and I built up to two times speed. I find much faster than that is kind of hard to absorb. And I've averaged about 80 books a year or so, most of which are audio. And then I save my physical reading time, which is more limited for um, often the like right now, I just bought uh, Brett Contreras' Glue Lab uh, book. And I mean, that one's going to take some time. That's a 600 page fucking textbook. Uh, it's fantastic. So that's going to get my attention for, you know, at least a few weeks. But what I find with book reading, it's not about remembering the entirety of the book. That's the silly. It's more about taking a few really critical points of philosophy away from this book. Right now I'm listening to Ryan Holiday's Stillness is Key, which is brand new. And I, Ryan is one of my favorite authors. And a lot of this book is actually about pausing, not emotionally reacting to things, but to actually like create space of stillness of quiet in your mind. He used a lot of historical examples of people who've done this, like Winston Churchill is a good example, um, or people who actually didn't do this very well and ego stuff like actually funny enough, Michael Jordan used a really good example with Michael Jordan and some of Michael's failings or as great as we think he is. And the good things that can come out of 
being patient. Uh, the best example he uses is John F. Kennedy in the Cuban Missile Crisis and how he didn't emotionally escalate and aggress his thing, if you know that history. And ultimately, we all are still around because the US and Russia didn't blow each other up because of that. And everybody thought that, that was the end of the world. And living now with someone who doesn't know that sort of thing, they don't actually understand just how serious that whole issue was. But it's an interesting read. But you just take one critical thing away from it, maybe a few stories, and that can influence and change the way that you, your entire philosophy towards everything versus trying to memorize the entirety of a book. So I sure. one or two really great pieces of philosophy away from a book, I think was well worth it. Yeah, I, I've yet to find a book that I didn't get something out of. But I do have a bad habit of, of pushing forward when I know I've kind of quit on a book. Just on principle, where it's like, well, I bought this. I'm going to do it. I'm in. <laughs> and I think that that's at the expense of consuming better information elsewhere. But I can't seem to break the habit. There's something to that as well. I think early on, it was becoming about, oh, I've got to read this many books. And that sort of bullshit gets in your head. And I would finish books that I otherwise, like you, uh, give up or should have given up on. And then I started giving up on books earlier when I realized, wait a second, I'm not interested in this. or or I think this is bullshit. So I've gotten better at pushing those books aside. I mean, the nice thing with audiobooks is it's actually easy to refund the ones. I was going to say, aren't. you're that guy that refunds all your books. No, no, actually, I rarely do, but you can refund one if it's crap. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, on principle, don't usually do that very often. But uh, yeah, it's not worth the effort, the time. Your time is very valuable to push through a book that you've otherwise realized, wait a second, this has no value to me. Sure. Okay. The real question since we've been talking about Twitter the whole time, where, where do people find Pete? Like where, where's the best place to consume all your info? You know, you already kind of told us. <laughs> yeah. Have you guys heard of Twitter? Yeah. Um, I, well, there are a couple ways. If you want to, if you want to see where my blog concepts originate on Twitter, I'm, I'm Pete underscore Dupuy, which my last name's not easy to say. Uh, based on my experience interacting with the world um, and the similarly mis- difficult to spell. Worst mispronunciation ever anyone's ever said. Um, I think dupus. That's that's consistently shown up, but um, dupuis, dupuis. They'll they'll put that uis and they'll actually really hammer out the us, <laughs> um, and that's fine. I mean, I did a, I I did a a television show a couple years ago where I. I consulted on a and as kind of in the fitness business space alongside Robert Herjavec from um, Shark Tank, and it was it was this phenomenal experience. I'm sitting in the room next to him, consulting with a, a fitness and boxing facility owner, and I was so psyched. And the episode comes out, and it was really cool and well done and well produced. And the the host of the show referred to me as Pete Dubious <laughs> and, and that is in there forever <laughs> just for the test of time but hey it happens <laughs> I mean shit happens but to to answer your question it's on the same username on Instagram and Twitter that's Pete underscore Dupuy and then my blog's PeteDupuy.com and what I do is I publish a blog every Thursday to just discussing stuff I've seen and done around the gym and I publish a newsletter on Fridays and the newsletter is a reminder of what I published that week and then it's four articles that I read and especially liked I call it my Friday four and those are just those are typically links to four articles with two to four sentences of why it is relevant to um, gym operators and that's a um, 
something I've been really consistent with. I made a, I made a resolution this year to do one of each uh, every Thursday and Friday for the duration of the year. And I've actually hit that mark. I have put out a blog every week of the year and put out a newsletter every week of the year. And at this point, my attitude's like, God, I'm into October. If, how could I not finish this at this point? I got to write it out. And so um, I'm still on that hot streak. And I hit publish this morning on the blog and the newsletter's already edited and drawn up for this week. So I know that I'm on to next week. This is something that shows up in a lot of the books that we probably both read is the um, Seinfeld. Jerry Seinfeld is an example. And his process is he writes jokes every day. He writes even a little bit and like, marks the X on the calendar. And then you don't want to break the streak of writing. Yep, exactly. And you know what's what's amazing is you, if you keep showing up and you keep building that dedicated audience, to an extent, people are starting to do the job for me. So now I'm starting to get responses to my newsletter from from subscribers where they're suggesting articles. So sometimes I will, I'll, on a Monday night, I'll look at my inbox from the weekend you know, having sent out a newsletter on Friday and I'll have three, four five articles that have been sent to me where people said, you know, I thought this one would resonate with you. And it's like, they're doing the job for me. <laughs> so that's become really cool where people are engaging with the process and they are, they're thinking how they can bring value to me. And I think it's because for four years I've been bringing value and not asking them to buy anything. So anyone who's listening, start sending Pete Twitter, Twitter, Twitter reasons. Yes, send me proposed tweets. Please do it in my voice. <laughs> the thing that I think people should do, especially anyone, because we have a lot of fitness professionals listen to this, and they're not necessarily gym owners, but I take a lot. I'm not a gym owner, uh, despite the fact that a lot of people think I own Evolve. Hell no. Uh, I am a contractor at Evolve, but that's okay. But I read your, your blog and your Friday Four is something that I, I'm pretty religious about. And despite the number of fitness professionals I, I follow and I'm friends with or I found influential, consuming everybody's stuff, it, it, it's prohibitively time consuming. I got a question on a, I did an Instagram question thing and someone asked me what I thought of Brett Contreras's uh, strong curves for women. And my answer was, well, actually I haven't read it. I mean, there's no way you can actually consume all this stuff. Meanwhile, I just paid 90 bucks to have Boot Lab shipped to me. So I support these people but I just can't read every single thing everybody's doing. But yours is something I make a point of. So I'll take this one step further. And you can, people, you can follow him on Twitter and follow Instagram. I think that's good. But actually go onto his webpage and sign up for his email. Like get on that. Then there's going to be stuff sent to you and then start reading it. Because Pete is someone that your, your thoughts have influenced the way that I approach a lot of things. Like, so you've had a lot of influence on me. And this is why we brought you back and, and why I was excited to see you presented at different seminars that I've traveled to. So, and th thanks for taking the time to sit down with us. I really appreciate it. And it's, uh, there are a lot of times when you create this stuff and then you feel like you just put it out there and it's crickets. <laughs> so it's, it's, it feels good to know that people are paying attention, uh, especially yourself as I've been finding myself consuming more and more of your information and strangely working my way through T nation articles that you wrote, even though I don't coach anybody, <laughs> just, just want to see what you're doing. <laughs> You see, that means a lot to me, and I'll, I'll say this to a lot of the trainers who are probably in a very similar space to where I am or maybe where I was in, in recent years, uh, and anyone who's been around for that time has kind of seen a lot of cool stuff happen. Again, we just organized, and, and a lot of people sort of attributed to our event as, as kind of me, as my event, well, I'm just the loudest voice on social media about it, and emceed it, or the T Nation stuff, or, well, this podcast. 
this all started because I started meeting and talking to, and, and originally before that, following people like yourself and a lot of the other names that we've, we've talked about on this episode. And this thing didn't all happen overnight. I didn't even plan any of this. Showed up, buddy. It, you just keep showing up. You keep trying stuff. Uh, you know, Dean, his relationships with stronger experts and, and stronger you are the product of meeting people and traveling to things and interacting with people. So if you're someone who's listening to this stuff and you have the ambition to, say, write for T Nation or to organize your own event or whatever you have, you're interested in, well, you, know, you should probably actually work towards this stuff. But it starts by consuming the information by people who stepped in those footsteps before you and you can learn from them, right? I'm, I'm not here writing for Teenage if I'm not reading the work of the guys who've been and writing for it for a long time. Sure, totally agree. Plus we would have said nice things anyways. So like, <laughs> we, we don't end it by saying mean stuff. So that could have all been fictitious, but I think- Yeah, know. let's wrap it up. Tell me what you like least about me. <laughs> <laughs> Hit me with some tough criticism. You know, I've I've fostered an environment where uh, feedback is welcome. So <laughs> I want to make a fake Twitter account and just be the troll that's trolling air. I'm gonna troll you. <laughs> I need it. I do need a troll. I haven't found my dedicated troll yet. And um, I can tell you, the guy the guy in Twitter's name is Karma, and he is always coming at Eric K H A R M A, and he's just it's all like it's like mechanical pitching philosophy and Eric's not even trying to engage in that. And this guy is like trying to kill him every single time he puts something up. Totally I totally need a guy totally like that. that. It's totally totally gentle. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be perfect. I, if, I would cry tears of joy if I found out that guy was Tony. <laughs> I think Tony's a little too busy with what raising a kid and, and opening court oh, like and all these other crazy things to be fucking with that shit. For sure. Tony. It's for sure. Done. No. All right. Thanks, Pete, so much. This is fun. And just stay on. We'll chat for a quick second. Shut up and sit down. Shut up and sit down.